Hello and welcome to Gin and Spooks. I'm Emma. I'm Laura. And what are we talking about today, Laura? We are going to talk about mysterious disappearances. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> For a split second, my brain went, have I got the topic right this week? Or were we supposed to be doing I thought, stalkers? I thought that Scott was like, oh, what, what's your topic for this week? And I went, mysterious disappearances. And I went, wait. <laughs> I went, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Literally, like, you could hear my brain going. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, and what are you drinking today, Laura? I am drinking some Strongbow Dark Fruits. What about you? Strawberry and lime cider from the can. <laughs> this has now re- been renamed as Cider and Spooks. Yep. <laughs> I don't know why. I just feel like gin's a bit too strong right now. Like I, I'm, I'm t- I've literally aged like twenty years. Yeah. This year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the like the whole idea of the podcast was get smashed on gin and tell some spooky stories and then it kind of evolved to oh let's do cocktails that are themed to what we're um talking about and then that's kind of just gone to what do I have in the cupboard that I kind (laughs) of fancy for nine times out of ten both of us that is cider rather than anything else I mean it's not like I don't have a lot of gin I have a lot of gin oh yeah me too but for some reason I just I don't have like the, the energy to get drunk on gin and then risk probably being hungover for the next 500 years. Yep. Because that's what happens now. <laughs> yep. It just makes me tired. Yeah. As well. It makes me want to like go out, but uh, I don't know anyone that wants to go out with me. So I'm like, <laughs> yeah, let's let's just have a <laughs> a casual drink. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping one day we'll get back into the swing of this and start doing proper drinks and stuff again. But I'm not going to force it if neither of us are feeling it. I think like it was all right when we were doing it through COVID because I mean, come on, yeah. like what was we doing in COVID that, you know, was exciting or anything like that, apart from exactly. going on walks. But now that like we're back at work and stuff and we have to go into the office and be sociable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of effort to then be sociable properly at weekends as, again as well. Yeah. Like I've noticed now that like if I'm doing training or like coaching or like people keep phoning me up and like asking for help and stuff, like my brain energy at home just stops. Yep. I could just, I just stop working. Like my mouth can't catch up with me when I'm trying to talk and half the time I can't talk. So I'm like, yeah. I think that's why I struggled with them doing the research as well. Cause my brain's just like, no, you're too tired for this. Because I spend my whole week having to put things into coherent sentences to make sure someone understands it. So for them, my brain to understand a new topic, it's like, no, no, thank you. <laughs> um, do you want to start with your story? Yes, go on then. I have done the mysterious disappearance of Amelia Earhart. Have you heard of Amelia Earhart? Uh, I have. She gets referenced a lot in like pop culture and stuff she does I don't know anything about her well I'm gonna teach you (laughs) so she was a pioneer of aviation she set many flying records and worked actively for the advancement of women in aviation but what happened to her Ooh, Ooh. the suspense okay so 
She was born on the 24th of July, 1897 in Atchison, Kansas, the elder sister of two girls. Amelia and her sister Grace had a slightly unconventional upbringing for girls of this time period. Their mum didn't believe in raising her kids to be nice little girls. Amelia and Grace had a strong spirit of, uh, a strong spirit of adventure and wore bloomers or trousers instead of the dresses other girls around the neighbourhood wore. These bloomers made it a lot easier for them to explore the neighbourhood, climbing trees, hunting rats with a rifle, belly slamming their sled downhill, like all sorts of kind of adventures. They kept worms, moths, a toad and other bugs as pets. So like the definition of the word tomboy. I hate the word tomboy because girls should just be allowed to like what they want. But if you had to define a tomboy, Amelia Earhart kind of just is, yeah. is it. So in 1904, she was about seven. Her uncle helped her build a ramp based on a roller coaster she had seen on a trip to St. Louis. They secured the ramp to the shed roof and she went down in an old wooden box. She came away with a bruised lip, a torn dress and a love for the buzz of adrenaline. Age 10, she saw her first aircraft, which was a biplane, which is one of those ones with like the double wings that you can do wing walking on and cool stuff. Yeah. Um, her dad tried to get her interested in it, but at first glance, she could see it was a rickety old thing and she would rather return to the merry-go-round than have a look at it. So not a good first impression of an aeroplane there. I've, I've done quite a lot about her life because I just think it's really interesting to see how she became the person she was. But there's also yeah. loads of stuff, her dad moving around and changing jobs. So I've picked the bits that I think are kind of like key to shaping who she was out of these bits. So there's chunks I'm probably missing and some of it probably might not make fully sense, but that's where I've gone with this. So... Amelia's dad got a new job in Des Moines, Iowa. The girls stayed in Atchison with their grandparents whilst their mum and dad moved into new, smaller accommodation closer to his work. Throughout this period, the girls were homeschooled by their mother and a governess. Amelia was incredibly fond of reading and spent most of her childhood, nope, spent most of her time in, a large, in the large family library. Throughout her childhood, she aspired to a future career in a predominantly male field and kept a scrapbook of newspaper clippings of women in such roles, such as film direction and production, law, advertising, management and mechanical engineering. So she's like 10 here and already she knows she wants to be something cooler than just what women were expected to do in, in this era. Because it's the early yeah. 1900s, like... In 1909... The girls moved to join their parents and were enrolled in public school for the first time. Amelia was 12 at this point, so she went into seventh grade, which I think is about year eight in the UK. In 1914, her father was forced to retire due to his alcoholism. He tried to re rehabilitate himself, but never got his job back. It was around this time that Amelia's grandma died, leaving Amelia heartbroken. Now, I think Amelia's grandma left a huge estate to her daughter, and therefore granddaughters, but she kind of kept it locked away so that it didn't all get spent on Amelia's dad's drinking because she did the grandma didn't want it to just be pissed yeah. away. Um, in 1915, her dad found a job in Minnesota. He then tried to get a transfer to Missouri, but it didn't work out. It didn't work out. With all this uncertainty about his job, the girl's mother took them to live with some friends in Chicago. 
Amelia's mum refused to put her in the local high school as their chemistry lab was basically just a kitchen sink. So she canvassed all the other schools in the area until she found the one with the best science programme. And that's the one she chose for Amelia. I think Amelia wow. was... Yeah, how cool is that? And this is 1915 as well. So um, I think she was only there for like a term in the end and then she graduated high school, but still. After graduating high school in 1916, she briefly attended college quitting to become a nurse instead after visiting her sister in Canada during the war and seeing the wounded soldiers returning home. She took part in a Red Cross training program and became a nurse's aide at Spadina Military Hospital, where she started prepping food for patients with special diets and handing out medication and other nurses. I don't think she was a fully qualified nurse, but she kind of helped them, like probably took blood pressure and all that kind of jazz. Yeah. In 1918, she spent over a month in hospital after contracting the Spanish flu. Complications from this and later operations to try and repair the damage plagued her for the rest of her life. She often had to wear a bandage on one cheek to cover up a draining tube, which was used to help relieve pressure on her sinuses. During her illness, she stayed with her sisters with her sister for over a year. And this is where she started studying mechanics in her spare time because she had nothing else to do because she was ill. So in December 1920, <clears throat> her dad paid $10 for her to spend 10 minutes in the air in a plane for the first time. And then there's a quote from Amelia here. She says, by the time I had got two to 300 feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly. She then started working a variety of odd jobs to save up enough money for flying lessons with pioneer female aviator Anita Snook. To look the part, to try her best to fit in, she cut her hair short like all the other women pilots. And she also bought herself a leather jacket and slept in it for three nights to give it a worn look. How cute is that? I don't know why I found this cute. That she just wanted to look the part. And so she just bought this leather jacket and like slept in it for a few nights so it didn't look brand new. Because, you know, when you get bullied for having like bright white trainers when you're a kid because they were clearly new. <laughs> yeah. It's that kind of thing. In the summer of 1921, so this is just like a few months after she started her flying lessons, she bought herself her first plane. It was a second-hand bright yellow Kinner Airster biplane, and she nicknamed it the Canary, <laughs> which is cute as well. I don't know, I just think she's really cute and really cool <laughs> as well, but she's really cute. So she passed her flight test in December 1921, earning her a National Aeronauts, Aeronautics Association licence. Then, in October 1922, she flew her plane, the Canary, to a 14,000-foot altitude, setting a world record for female pilots. So already, like, she's been flying for a year and she set a record. And then she goes on to set so many more records. Okay, so in 1928, she became the first woman... The, 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 she became the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. She joined a pilot called Wilma... Stoltz and a co-pilot slash mechanic Louis E. Gordon, cousin cousin Louis. <laughs> Every time my dad sees someone with the name Gordon, like in um just on the credits, he's like, ah oh, yes, cousin so and so. So when I was <laughs> writing this earlier, I was like, oh yes, cousin Louis. Anyway, so they took off from Trespassy Harbor in Canada in an airplane type called uh Fokker F7. And the plane was named Friendship. Oh. Um, 
and 21 hours later, they landed in Burryport, Wales. Their flight made headlines worldwide because three pilots had died within the last year trying to be the first woman to make the trip across the Atlantic. In 1930, she set a speed record in her plane after hitting 184 miles per hour. The previous record had been 156 miles per hour, so big difference. Um, In 1931, she married publicist George Putnam, who she had gotten close to after his involvement in the planning of her Atlantic crossing with Gordon and Stoltz. Um, She was, however, determined to keep her independence and referred to her marriage as a partnership with dual control. Yep. Yeah, boy. She's so ahead of her time. Like, this is 1930, and she's like, dude, this is an equal partnership here. So, in 1932, she became the first woman and the second person ever to fly solo across the Atlantic. She left Harbour Grace in Canada on the 20th of May and then arrived a day later in Northern Ireland, landing in a cow field near Londonderry. For this, she received a Distinguished Flying Cross medal. Uh, the first woman to ever receive one, and a gold medal from the National Geographic Society. Amelia said she felt the flight proved that men and women were equal in jobs requiring intelligence, coordination, speed, coolness, and willpower. Yep. Your boy. Your boy. Uh, Also, in 1932, she became the first woman to make a solo non-stop flight across the USA. From 1931 to 1933, She was the president of a group called the 99ers. So this is an international organization for the advancement of female pilots. The organization still exists today and represents women flyers from 44 countries. And then in 1935, she became the first person to fly solo across the Pacific Ocean from Honolulu to Oakland, California. When she got cold during the 2,408 mile flight, she unpacked a thermos of hot chocolate She said, that was the most interesting cup of chocolate I've ever had, sitting up 8,000 feet over the middle of the Pacific Ocean, quite alone. Sounds nice and peaceful, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So at this point, she was somewhat of a celebrity. And after being the first solo pilot to fly from Mexico City to Newark that same year, a large crowd overflowed the field and rushed her plane. She had to be rescued and transported to a car by policemen. But she, when she talks about this, she says that these policemen kind of got her out the plane and there were so many people around. And then one policeman had like her arms and one policeman had her legs and they tried to take her to, do, to two different cars. So she was just kind of being like pulled in two different directions. <laughs> um. So, you know, she's had a pretty illustrious career so far but in 1937 which is coming up to her 40th birthday she decided that she wanted to be the first woman to fly around the world she said I have a feeling that there is just about one more good flight left in my system and I hope this trip is it on the 1st of June 1937 she left Miami in her twin engine Lockheed Lockheed Electra plane accompanied by her navigator Fred Noonan (laughs) Noonan. That name just makes me laugh. I don't know why. Noon. Their plan was to fly a 29,000 mile journey around the world with stops for refueling. They successfully flew 22,000 miles of their 29,000 mile journey, making numerous stops in South America, Africa, the Indian subcontinent and Southeast Asia, eventually stopping off in Leh, New Guinea for refueling before setting off on their most challenging leg yet. So back then, maps were not as accurate as they are now because it's the 1930s. 
And this, so this leg of the trip involved flying 2,556 miles from Ley to Howland Island, which is an island in the Pacific that's about a mile long and half a mile wide. So like the tiniest little thing. And they've got to just fly over this huge expanse of ocean to this tiny little island to land for refueling. I mean, they're setting themselves up for a failure here, I feel. That's mad. Yeah. Um, so the expected flight time was approximately 20 hours. To give them the best chance of making it, every unessential item was removed from the plane, which allowed about, I think it's about 276 miles worth of extra fuel. The US Coast Guard positioned a boat called Itasca just offshore from the island, and that was to be their radio contact. So as they got close, they could radio in. They, the US Coast Guard also positioned two more boats uh, on the flight path with every light on board switched on to help with visibility and spotting the island. So I think the thought process there was as they're coming in, they'll see these boats glowing and know that they're close. On July the 2nd at 10 a.m., the pair took off. Despite ideal weather reports, they flew into overcast skies and intermittent rain showers. This made Noonan's favoured method of tracking, which was celestial navigation, difficult. I'd Right, side note. How do you do celestial navigation during the daytime? Because celestial navigation is when you like follow the stars to know which way you're going, which blows my mind anyway that people can do that. But how do you do it in the day? Um, I guess you would have to use the sun, wouldn't you? So yeah. like the moon always going to be visible that's a good point visible. actually um especially probably at that height yeah so you would have to do so basically you would have to do the direction of where the sun is to be able to navigate where you're going because that's obviously what people used to do before they had time like but that only know, kind of this and stuff yeah but then they'd have to know roughly what time of day it was to know whether it was coming up or going down but i guess you could tell if you were watching it whether it's going up or down but they're um, at this point though it's really really overcast, so they've kind of gone lower, so they're not up above the clouds. They're kind of below the clouds. So they can't really see. Anything. Yeah, uh, I think like with telling the time and stuff, they would have been able to use the sun because that's how the like people used to be able to do that anyway. And the moon's always visible as well. Yeah. Anyway. Think, anyway. So they've been flying for ages because obviously it's like a twenty-hour flight. Um. But as dawn neared, Amelia called the Itasca, reporting cloudy weather, cloudy. In later transmissions, she asked the ship to take bearings on her. The ship sent her a steady stream of transmissions, but she could not hear them. Her radio transmissions, irregular through most of the flight, were faint or interrupted with static. At 7.42am, the Itasca picked up the message. We must be on you, but we cannot see you. Fuel is running low been unable to reach you by radio we are flying at 1000 feet the ship tried to reply but the plane seemed not to hear at 8 45 a.m amelia reported we are running north and south nothing further was heard from her their last known position was near the nukumanu islands about 800 miles into the flight so i think running north and south means they're kind of going up and down the same route to try and find where they are to try and find this island yeah but then they just disappeared, gone. They never arrived. A rescue attempt immediately commenced and became the most extensive air and sea search in naval history. On July the 19th, which is two weeks after, um, 
after spending $4 million and scouring 250,000 square miles of ocean, the United States government reluctantly called off the operation. In 1938, a lighthouse was constructed on Howland Island in her memory, and across the United States, streets, schools, and airports are named after Amelia Earhart. Her birthplace, Atchison, Kansas, became a virtual shrine to her memory. Amelia Earhart awards and scholarships are given out every year. So there's been a few theories on what happened to them. The first theory is called the crash and sink theory. And this one's pretty self-explanatory. Basically, they crashed and sank. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people just believe that the, they ran out of fuel whilst searching for the for Howland Island. They crashed into the sea and died. This is the official US position on the matter. But about 15 years ago, Nauticos, a company that performs deep ocean searches and other ocean research services, led an effort to locate Earhart's plane where they believed it crashed in the Pacific Ocean in the vicinity of Howard Island. Nauticos president David Jordan said in 2003 that by studying factors such as her broken up radio transmissions and what is known about the plane's fuel supply, he and his colleagues had narrowed down an area of the ocean that they believe will eventually yield the plane's grave. In March and April of 2002, the couple used a high-tech deep-sea sonar system to search the 630 square miles of the ocean floor near Howland. They didn't find the plane on that expedition or on a 2006 follow-up mission. Later, in 2009, a team organised by the Waite Institute for Discovery searched a roughly Delaware-sized area just west of Howland with the help of deep-sea robots. This expedition found no evidence or clues of their disappearance either. So if they did just crash and sink, they can't have been anywhere near this island that they were supposed to be at. Yeah, which would have been that's a bit strange. Yeah, because they're both such, she's such an experienced pilot and Fred Noonan was such an um, experienced navigator. And they both, from the radio transmissions, it sounded like they thought they were close to this island. So if they had crashed and sunk, then surely they would have found them by now with all these search efforts yeah so the castaway theory the international group for historic aircraft recovery also known as tiger is investigating the hypothesis that Earhart and new Earhart, Earhart and noonan landed their lockheed electra on nikumaroro island a speck of land 350 nautical miles southwest of howland so basically the theory is they picked a different island instead of howland island so the researchers based their hypothesis on Earhart's last radio transmissions. At 8.43 a.m. on July the 2nd, she radioed the Atiska saying, we are on the line 157337. The Atiska, I feel like I'm saying things wrong. We'll keep going. The Atiska received the transmission but couldn't get, couldn't get any bearings on the signal. The line 157337 indicates that the plane was flying on a northwest to southeast navigational line that bisected Howland Island. If Earhart and Noonan missed Howland, they would fly either northwest or southeast on the line to find it. To the northwest of Howland lies open ocean for thousands of miles. To the southwest is Nikumaroro. The line of position radio message was the last confirmed transmission from Earhart, but radio operators received 121 messages over the next 10 days. Of those, at least 57 could have been from Amelia's plane, the Electra. 
Wireless stations took direction of bearings on six of them. At the time of Earhart's disappearance, the tide on Nikumaroro was especially low, revealing a reef surface along the shore, long and flat enough for a plane to land. If Earhart sent any of those 57 radio transmissions, the plane must have landed relatively intact. So the Tiger researchers theorised that Earhart and Noonan radioed at night to avoid the searing daytime heat inside the aluminium plane. Eventually, the tide lifted the Electra off the reef and it sank or broke up in the surf because the transmission stopped on July the 13th, 1937. Yeah, so the last, so obviously the last radio transmission the ship heard was that we are on the line 157337, but other wireless stations, I'm sure I've read somewhere that one of them was in Florida, received so many other radio transmissions that sounded like they could have been from Amelia and um, a lot of them actually had like coordinates and stuff but no one actually went and searched those coordinates where these radio transmissions were coming from or were saying that she was. Other evidence points to Earhart and Noonan's fate as castaways on Nicomoro. Later in 1937 a British party explored the island with the intent of colonizing it. Fucking British colonizing everything. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Who do we think we are? Um, Eric Bevington, a colonial officer, noticed what looked like an overnight bivouac. I don't know what that is. He took a photograph of the shoreline, which includes an unidentified object that Tiger, Tiger speculates might be a plane's landing gear. By 1938, the island was colonised as part of the Phoenix Island Settlement Scheme, one of the British Empire's last expansions. Colonists reported finding airplane parts, some of which could have plausibly come from Amelia's plane. In 1940, Gerald Gallagher, the colonial administrator, discovered 13 bones buried near the remains of a campfire. He also found the remnants of two shoes, a man's and a woman's, as well as a box that once held a navigation device. The bones were shipped off to Fiji, measured and subsequently lost. Tiger researchers evaluated the measurements using modern techniques and determined the bones could have been from a woman of Earhart's size and build. So they found these bones. Um, the original researcher measured them, wrote the measurements down and said, oh, it's probably it's probably a man. But um, and then chucked the bones away or they got lost or whatever. So no DNA test could be done. Um, but other researchers have had a look at these measurements and thought actually that that sounds like they could have been Amelia's because they're the right size and shape of a woman of her age and height. But they're gone, so there's no way of testing them. So this company, Tiger, has launched 12 expeditions to Nikumaroro since 18, no, 1989. Over the course of those visits to the island, they've identified a site that matches Gallagher's description of where the bones were found. At this site, there's evidence of several campfires, as well as the remains of birds, fish, turtles and clams, indicating that someone ate there. Based on the way the clams were opened and the fish consumed, that someone was probably not a Pacific Islander. Several 1930s era glass bottles have also been discovered at the site. One of them may even have contained freckle cream, a cosmetic Earhart was likely to have used. There's currently an expedition underway at Nicomaroro deploying dogs that specialise in sniffing out human remains as deep as nine feet underground and as old as 1,500 years. No other sign, no, no other technology 
is as sophisticated than dogs, says Fred Hybert, the archaeologist in residence at the National Geographic Society, which is sponsoring these dogs. Aww. They have a higher rate of success at identifying things than ground penetrating radar. So to me, that sounds really fucking plausible that actually they couldn't find the right islands that landed on this island. And there's quite a lot of evidence suggesting that she was there. Yeah, definitely. But there's one more theory named the Marshall Islands Conspiracy. So this isn't just named a theory, it's named a conspiracy, which when you hear the word conspiracy, I'm immediately like, hmm, bullshit. <laughs> so a third theory is that Earhart and Noonan, unable to find Howland, headed north to the Japanese-controlled Marshall Islands, where they were taken hostage by the Japanese, probably thinking they were US spies. Some believe both pilots were eventually killed, whilst others believe that Earhart and maybe Noonan returned to the US under other names, like new identities. Um, there's a guy called Roland C. Reineck, who is a retired US Air Force colonel living in Kalua. He theorizes Earhart. Why do I keep saying Earhart? I mean, I know why I keep saying Earhart, because that's how it's fucking spelled, but her name's Earhart. <laughs> Anyway, this dude theorizes Earhart took the name Irene Craigmile, then married a guy called Guy Bolum and became Irene Bolum, who died in New Jersey in 1982. He says if she couldn't find Howland, plan B was to cut off communications and head for the Marshall Islands and ditch her airplane there. He even wrote a book on it <laughs> called Amelia Earhart Survived. And this describes a scenario in which she ditched her plane in the Marshall Islands, returned to the US under an assumed name for national security reasons. According to Reineck, the, the scheme would have allowed the US government to rescue her in the Marshall Islands and at the same time perform pre-war reconnaissance on the Japanese. He says, however, the plan went bad, as a lot of plans do. Earhart radioed that she was headed north, the message was intercepted, and the Japanese took her hostage, he claims. But the problem is, like, the person he says is actually Amelia Earhart now is a woman called Irene Bolum, and she's like a real person. So she, Irene, was a banker in New York during the 1940s. She'd completely denied being Amelia, filed a lawsuit requesting $1.5 in damages and submitted a lengthy written statement in which she rebuted the claims. Subsequently, her personal life history was thoroughly documented by researchers, eliminating any possibility that she was Amelia Earhart. A professional criminal forensic expert hired by National Geographic has studied photographs of both women and cited there's many measurable facial differences between Earhart and Bolum, so it can't be her. However much people want to believe that she's alive in a new name, if she is, that, it's not Irene. In recent years, um, a guy called Dick Spink, <laughs> um, he pick, he's picked up the same, um, he's picked up Ryanek's conspiracy theory and run with it, basically, collecting oral histories from the Marshall Islands. He says that he's found proof that Earhart and Noonan landed on a tiny, um, a tiny island named Millie. The world needs to know this, he said in a 2015 interview. I heard a consistent story from too many people in the Marshall Islands to dismiss it. They say she landed at Millie. Our aunts and uncles, our parents and our grandparents know she landed here. The Marshallese accounts were so convincing that Spinker spent $50,000 of his own money searching for the spot where she landed. 
He contends that the Islanders' stories will be borne out by scientific proof. There's a History Channel documentary that's recently aired called Amelia Earhart, The Lost Evidence. And it's saying, it says that um, new connections between Earhart and the Marshall Islands have been found because they think they found this photo that's from 1937. And they think on this photo that it shows um, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan on a dock on one of the Marshall Islands. And then the documentary argues that the Japanese Navy thought that Earhart and Noonan were US spies, eventually imprisoning them on the island to await deaths either by execution or dysentery. Though the new documentary's rep reception among academics remains to be seen, many Earhart, fucking hell, Earhart enthusiasts have long dismissed the Marshall theory as outlandish. A guy called Elgin Long, a retired pilot who spent decades researching her disappearance, believes that in the splash and sank theory, the plane would have had to float a long way to reach the Marshall Islands. For him, the answer to the mystery rests 17,000 feet under the ocean. Fred Patterson, a World Airways pilot for 25 years, who also owned two of the same type of plane as Earhart, shares Long's opinion. There's just no way she made it to the Marshall Islands, he said in 2015. I've done some long range flying in that airplane myself, and I know exactly what it burns per hour. Patterson, Long and many others in their camp argue that radio transmissions place Earhart near her intended destination of Howland Island when she uttered gas is running low. The distance from Howland to um, Marshall Islands is 800 miles, which is nearly four and a half hours away at the electric cruising speed. But until her wreckage is found, the mystery surrounding her disappearance is just going to remain a mystery. I have another theory. Aliens. No, I'm really kidding. <laughs> <laughs> except have you seen the latest series of american <coughs> horror story i started it and then because it's got vampires in it aren't it mm. so i think i like watched the first two or three episodes and i stopped and i've just for some reason never picked it back up so rather than having one series that's one story there's two stories so you've got the vampire story and then the second half is an aliens story and Amelia Earhart's in that briefly. But basic, I don't want to spoil it for you, so I won't say. Oh, no, no, it's fine. So basically, um, the aliens, I think the, the gist of it is, it's not fantastic. It's not my favourite American Horror Story series by a, a lot, by a long shot. But the theory is the aliens planet is dying, so they need to find a new place to live. For some reason... They've picked Earth because they think they can breed their species with humans really well, but they have to, they keep abducting all these human women in order to find the perfect host to get pregnant and give birth to the perfect specimen. And basically on, they, on that, they suggest that Amelia Earhart was kidnapped by these aliens and then was used as a host body to give birth to one of the first like creations and she's kind of, yeah, she's only on it like briefly for one episode. But I was like, oh, oh no, Amelia. That's so like wild though. Like I think if I had to pick like a theory out of all of them that you've just mentioned, I think it would be the, the castaway one. Yeah. Where they too. end up running out of fuel. So they see a nearby island, land on it, and then probably try and eat something that they're yeah. not native to and it's like poisonous or something and sort of killing them yeah and they um I just think it's wild that they had like everyone was looking for her 
then they had all these radio transmissions sounding like it could be her with coordinates and they didn't think to go look at those coordinates like people might lack common sense kind of thing like yeah they just go oh it can't be but how would you know until like you've actually yeah. you know figured it out and I reckon those bones that were found were hers probably um, because yeah it just seems like there's a lot a lot of evidence that someone not from the Pacific Islands was on that island for a bit um apparently one of the ways they could tell it wasn't one of the Pacific Islanders that had been eating there was because they found those of fish heads um and white people from America at that time wouldn't have eaten the fish heads or still don't eat fish heads do we really but yeah no I think that's the most plausible theory to be honest because I think if they'd just crashed and sunk, then we would have found them by now because they were in the vicinity, surely. Well, yeah, because if they were able to find, uh, you know, find the Titanic wreckage after like yeah. almost 100 years and stuff, then yeah, you'd think. But then again, the obviously the materials that the plane was made from could have been more easy to um, disintegrate in the because of the current in the ocean and stuff. So yeah compared to a boat yeah was well, a uh, titanic was made of a uh, iron won't it i don't know you're the expert i'm sure it was made <laughs> of iron. it was definitely made probably something more thicker and more durable and then yeah because you can't have the plane wouldn't have been made out of anything too heavy and durable because it's got to lift and take off yeah exactly so that's probably why they couldn't find it in the end yeah because of rotten away essentially yeah all the ocean just broke it down into small parts that have floated unless off. she got um unless she uh ended up in the bermuda triangle and yes <laughs> who knows or her and fred noonan were just like ah fuck it we'll run away together made it look like they've disappeared and they are just living somewhere random um yeah they could do they could do i mean i think she'd probably be dead by now Oh, she absolutely would be dead by now because she was born in 1897. Also, the photograph I mentioned, how people say that this photograph supposedly taken on the Marshall Islands in 1937 that shows Amelia and Noonan on the dock. I had a look at it and I'm like, how the fuck can you tell who they are from that photo? But I will definitely put it on the Instagram and on the blog so that everyone can see it. Yeah. It's like the smallest little faces and they're not even facing the camera properly like the one that's supposedly Noonan is like half in shadow and then the one that's supposedly Amelia is facing kind of it's like her profile and her hair is far too long to be Amelia's um and then I think scientists said something like that photo for that photo to be of Amelia and Noonan it would have had to be taken within a specific two-day range or something and there's no way that her hair would have grown from what it was when she yeah. took off to what it is in the photo um yeah, but i'll still put it up because it's interesting yeah like yeah. well i have been educated she sounds like a pretty cool woman to be honest yeah she's a very interesting woman um i've heard her name get mentioned especially in like tv programs and stuff yeah but i just never knew her background well enough yeah same okay so the one i'm doing today was actually meant to be for a Christmas episode <laughs> so it was going to be like a true crime Christmas because it happened on Christmas Eve 
Yeah. But it's the the Sodder family murders. Ooh. Ooh. Well, it says murders. Disappearance. But, yeah, like to like towards like well, the ending of it is still like kind of open because of reasons which I will go into detail. I'm excited for this. So on Christmas Eve, December the 24th, 1945, a fire destroyed the Sodder home in Fayetteville, West Virginia. At the time, it has it was occupied by George Sodder, his wife Jenny, and nine of their ten children. That's a lot Jesus. of children. Christ. <laughs> like a little tribe. But this, was this just after World War II? What year did you say it was? 1945. Yeah, uh, September 1945. Okay, so literally just after, so yeah, um, people did start seeing like, um, what like a rise in like births and like people having like loads of kids and stuff. Yeah, because of like, obviously, quite a lot of them died in the, the wars. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so during the fire, George, Jenny, and four of their nine children escaped. The bodies of the other five children have never been found. The Sodders believed for the rest of their lives. I'll start that one again. The Sodders believed for the rest of their lives that the fire myth that the five missing children survived. Like, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. The Sodders never rebuilt the house, instead converting the site into a memorial garden to their lost children in the 1980s, as they came to doubt that the children had perished. The family put up a billboard at the site along State Route 16 with pictures of the five offering a reward for information that would bring closure to the case. It remained up until shortly after Jenny Sodder's death in 1989. In support of their belief that the children survived, the Sodders have pointed to a number of unusual circumstances before and during the fire. George disputed the fire department's finding that the blaze was electrical in origin, noting that he had recently had the house rewired and inspected. He and his wife suspected arson, leading to theories that the children had been taken by the Sicilian Mafia, perhaps in retaliation for George's outspoken criticism of Benito, Mussolini and the fascist government of his native Italy. Why have I just struggled with the word Italy? I don't know. Yeah, you, you made it through Mussolini and fascists, but not Italy. <laughs> my brain just went... Um, where am I? So state and federal efforts to investigate the case further in the early 1950s yielded no new information. The family did, however, later receive what may have been a picture of one of the boys as an adult during the 1960s. The last surviving sister, along with the Sodder grandchildren, continued to publicise the case in the 21st century in the media and online. The Sodders celebrated on Christmas Eve 1945. Marion, the oldest daughter, had been working at a dime store in downtown and she surprised three of her younger sisters, Martha, Jenny and Betty, with new toys she had brought for them as gifts. The younger children were so excited that they asked their mother if they could stay up past their bedtime. At 10pm, Jenny told them that they could stay up a little later as long as the two oldest boys who were still awake, 14-year-old Maurice and his 9-year-old brother Louis, remembered to feed the chickens before going to bed. (laughs) George and the two oldest boys, John and George Jr., who had spent the day working with their father, were already asleep. After reminding the children of those remaining chores, she took Sylvia upstairs with her and they went to bed. 
So Sylvia was only two at the time. Yeah. The telephone rang at 12.30 a.m. Jenny woke and went downstairs to answer it. Caller was a woman whose voice she did not recognise, asking her a name she was not familiar with, with the sound of laughter and, cl and clinking glasses in the background. Jenny told the caller she had reached the wrong number, later recalling the woman's weird laugh. Jenny hung up and returned to bed. As she did, she noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn, two things that the children normally tended to when they stayed up later than their parents. Marion had fallen asleep on the sofa, so Jenny assumed the other children had gone up to bed. She closed the curtains, turned out the lights and returned to bed. Suspicious! Don't be suspicious. Don't, Don't be, be suspicious. suspicious. At 1am, Jenny was again awakened by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a, lo with a loud bang and then a rolling noise. After hearing nothing further, she went back to sleep. After another half hour, she woke up again smelling smoke. When she got up again, she found that the room George used for his office was on fire and around the telephone line and fuse box. Jenny woke him and he in turn woke his older sons. Both parents and four of the children, Marion, Sylvia, John and George Jr. escaped the house. They frantically yelled to the children upstairs but heard no response. They could not go up there as the stairway itself was already aflame. John said in his first police interview after the fire that he went up to the attic to alert his siblings sleeping there. Though he later changed his story to say that he only called up there and did not actually see them. Oh. Efforts to find aid and rescue the children were unexpectedly complicated. The phone did not work, so Marion ran to her neighbours to call the fire department. The driver on the nearby road had also seen the flames and called from a nearby tavern. They too were unsuccessful either because they could not reach the operator or because the phone there turned out to be broken. Either the neighbour or the passing motorist was eventually successful in reaching the fire department from another phone in the centre of town. George Barefoot climbed the wall and broke open an attic window, cutting his arm in the process. He and his sons intended to use a ladder to the attic to rescue the other children, but it was not in its usual spot, resting against the house and could not be found anywhere nearby. A water barrel that could have extinguished the fire was frozen solid. George then tried to pull both of the trucks he used in his business up to the house and used them to climb to the attic window, but neither of them would start despite having worked perfectly during the previous day. So Mate, they're many... just having a fucking bad time here. Yeah, but there's so many suspicious things. Like Frustrated, the six sodders who had escaped had no choice but to watch the house burn down and collapse over the next four to five minutes. They oh. assume the other children have perished in the blaze. The fire department, um, low on manpower due to the war and relying and on individual firefighters to call each other, did not respond until later that morning. It's so sad. Imagine having to stand there and watch your house burn thinking, is it six, five, six? Six. Of your children are still inside. I know, yeah. It's an awful thing. Yeah. Chief Morris said the next day that the already slow response was further hampered by his inability to drive the fire truck, requiring that he, he wait until someone who could drive was available. Oh, that's awful as well. The firefighters, one of them, one of whom was a brother of Jenny, could do little but walk through the ashes that were left in the sodders' basement. By 10am, Morris told the sodders that they had not found any bones as might have been expected if the other children had been in the house as it burned. According to another account, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but chose to, not to tell the family. 
It's also been noted by modern fire professionals that their search were, was cursory at best. Nevertheless, Morris but believed that the five children, unaccounted for, had died in a fire, suggesting it had been hot enough to burn their bodies completely. Well, I feel like it has to be really fucking hot to burn a body, and I don't for one second think a house fire can burn so, so hot as to burn our bodies that completely. Sure, don't your teeth get left or something as well? So... The Sorry. aftermath of the fire. No, no, it's fine. Um, Morris told George to leave the site undisturbed so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough, thorough investigation. However, after four days, George and his wife could not bear the site anymore, so he bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site, well, with the intention of converting it to a memorial garden for the lost children. The local coroner actioned an inquest the next day, which held held that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring. Among the jurors was the man who had threatened George that his house would be burnt down and his children destroyed in retribution, retribution for his anti-Mussolini remarks. That's extra um, suspicious. God, you'd scare the shit out of me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just scared. I was like, what? what? <laughs> I don't know why, but... <laughs> um, it is. It's all very suspicious so far. I was just yeah. like, this doesn't add up at all. So the death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30th. The local newspaper contradicted itself, stating that all the bodies had been found, but then later in the same story reporting that only part of one body was recovered. George and Jenny were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral on January 2nd, 1946, although their surviving children did. The parents couldn't even go. No. Not long after, as they began to rebuild their lives, the Sodder family started to question all of the official findings about the fire. They wondered why, if it had been caused by an electric problem, the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the fire's early stages when the power should have gone out. They found the ladder that had been missing from the side of the house on the night of the fire as it was at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away. How did it get there? Telephone repairmen told the Sodder family that the house's phone line had not been burnt through in the fire, as they had initially thought, but cut by someone who had been willing and able to climb 14 feet up the pole and reach two feet away from it to do so. A man whom neighbours had been stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire has identified was identified and arrested um he admitted to that to the theft and claimed he had been the one to cut the phone line thinking it was the power line but denied having anything to do with the fire however no record identifying the suspect exists and why he would have wanted to cut any utility lines to the solder house while stealing the, the block and tackle mm. and which was never explained yeah. Jenny said in 1968 that if he had cut the power line, she and her husband, along with the other four children, would have never been able to make it out of the house. So they would have all died if that was yeah. the case. So it's a good job he didn't. Yeah. Um, so I think Jenny lying, also, though. but yeah, he probably ahead. was because they don't, they haven't got any like record of him like yeah. making the confession, a uh, confession, and I don't think it. When I was researching it, they never mentioned anything about anyone actually being like charged no. for the fire or anything like that. Um, Jenny also had trouble accepting Morris's belief that all traces of the children's bodies had been burnt completely in the fire. 
many of the household appliances have been found still recognisable in the ash along with fragments of the tin roof. She contrasted the results of the fire with a newspaper account of, of a similar house fire that she had read around the same time that killed a family of seven. Skeletal remains of all the victims were reported to have been found in that case. Jenny burnt small piles of animal bones to see if they would have completely consumed. None ever were. An employee of a local crematorium she contacted told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burnt at 200 Fahrenheit. No, 2000 Fahrenheit. Mm. For two hours, for longer and hotter than the house fire could have been. Yeah. Because it says that, like, even when we get burnt, like, when we, like, you know, we're getting cremated. Yeah. Like, some bone fragments are still there. So the Sodders truck failure to start was also considered. George believed they had been tampered with, perhaps, by the same man who stole the block and tackle and cut the phone line. However, one of George's son-in-law told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he had come to believe that Sodder and his sons, in their haste to start the trucks, um, flooded the engines. Um, some accounts have suggested a wrong number phone call to the Sodder house might also somehow been connected to the fire. However, investigators located the woman who made the call and she confirmed it was just a wrong number. Bullshit. Still, <laughs> all of it. I feel like I fucking whizzed through that. I thought I had more information, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, it's just a very suspicious um, case that was just never resolved, and they lost like five of the children. Yeah. But well, they did lose five of the children, but they never found the bodies in the fire. So. Yeah, I would. I think if I was them, I would. You would absolutely think your kids were still alive somewhere. They've just disappeared without a trace. I absolutely think the Sicilian mafia had something to do with it because it's a bit suspicious that that guy threatened the dad's name's George isn't it yeah I think it's a bit suspicious that that guy would threaten George and say exactly what happened before it happened then just knocked your microphone over (laughs) then for the ladder to not be there the trucks to not start the phone line to be cut it's just all too suspicious. Yeah. And like um, for them to turn around and go, oh, we found some bone fragments, but they never identified what the bone fragments were. And yeah. then they decided not to tell the family about it. That's suspicious too, somehow. Yeah. And then you have to think if like the mafia were involved and obviously you've got like police officers, you've got like oh, other absolutely. authority, like the fire. I think... Involved. I also think maybe the fire brigade were involved with the mafia because it took them so long to get there. Yeah, so they probably got paid off. Yeah. Um, just to turn up late and just let yeah, yeah, let them burn basically, or or they must have because it's like what they said, like all the Christmas lights were still on. Like even Jenny went downstairs yeah. and saw that the lights were still on. Um, and this was like what now or so just before the fire yeah. started. Yeah. And if she had got that room I think she would have noticed that her children were missing yeah I bet she's kicking herself like why didn't I just go upstairs to check that they had actually gone to bed yeah and yeah no I definitely think they were kidnapped before wasn't one of the sisters asleep on the sofa and all the lights were on yeah uh, that was the oldest one I I definitely reckon they were kidnapped then someone set the house on fire and 
took away things like the ladder and the trucks to make sure that they couldn't escape very well or easily and cut the phone out yeah. and stuff. I absolutely think it was kidnapped. And then I don't know, I don't really know what had happened to the kids after. You'd think that some of them were old enough to surely know who they are and maybe see headlines. But then I suppose if you're young enough. Well, let me just double check which ones. Because they are so fucking many. We do. I did write the ages, so I'm just trying to remember. So the ones that survived were John, who was 23, and George Jr., 16, Sylvia, who was two. Because um, the parents took one of those. That's, that's five. So then you've got, so you got, what number is that, Emma? 12, I think. So you got Martha, who's 12, Jenny, eight, and Betty, five. Honestly. For a start, who has this many kids anyway? Well, they didn't really have contraception properly back then, did they? Is Well, they didn't no. believe in it. A lot of people didn't. I know, like, three of the daughters had gone because um, the other daughter who was asleep on the sofa was the only one that was left. Oh, okay. So I've got the, the five that are missing. You've got Betty, who was six, Jenny, who's eight, Lewis, who was ten, Martha, who was 12, and then Maurice, who was 14. So you'd think the 12 and 14-year-olds would be old enough to remember, but maybe not. And then you have to think as well, like, obviously, what would happen to them if they were kidnapped by the mafia? The mafia would probably, like, indoctrinate them and brainwash them and stuff. Say that, like, your your family's, you know, they're bad. Yeah, and they don't want you anymore. And Yeah, and even no matter what age, like... My 14 is still quite young to be able to like you can easily be manipulated yeah so I don't I don't think they died in the fire because I think that you know they definitely would have found bones like for all of the kids yeah um, so I think you know the mafia did play a bigger part in it and um, probably paid off loads of like local authorities to like you know let it happen essentially let let the house burn yeah I agree but very sad that poor mother the fact that she even was trying to like burn animal bones and just to see like what was going on in life it's really would disintegrate it's really sad yeah but there you go you've been educated yeah learn something new every day so what's today's lesson um, then don't have morning like two kids <laughs> <laughs> don't upset the sicilian mafia yeah don't upset the mafia. Don't have more than two kids that you can't get out of bed and out of your house that's on fire. Yeah. And don't try and fly around the world and try and land at Howland Island with no <laughs> navigation system. Oh, no, they, did, they did have navigation systems. It was just a long time ago. Just, yeah, just use your common sense, I think, is the key yeah. lesson. Which we all know doesn't really happen when you're like in tense and stressful situations. No, no, I can't think of a would you rather because they're both actually kind of sad stories. They are quite sad. I thought it was quite good uh, on mine. Like you know, the it was definitely um, mysterious, suspicious. Yes, yeah. yours is way is really really suspicious. Um, yeah, Amelia Earhart's more mis- mysterious suspicious yeah because Amelia was just like where the fuck did she go actually with the kids it's like where the fuck did they go because I they definitely didn't burn to death 
Yeah, I mean, it's called like the side of family murders, but I don't don't think it's a murder. Bodies to like cast it as a murder. You don't know it's a murder. Yeah, but yeah, just uh, don't know. Use your common sense. Don't assault the mafia. Would you rather be a part of the Sicilian mafia or? I was going to say be a pilot, but I'd fucking be a pilot every day over the being in the mafia. Um, would you rather, this is really morbid, so I might cut it out. Would you rather okay. Would you rather die in a fire or die in a plane crash like Amelia, we think Amelia did, like as in the castaway theory where she was on a desert island for ages and then died? Or would you rather die in a fire? Um, I'd rather die in the fire um, because yeah. it, how long does it take? It's like 30 seconds or something for your nerve endings to actually burn. Um, but the reason, obviously, why we're screaming and stuff is just because of like reaction to it. Yeah. Um, Whereas on a cast, as a castaway, you'd have that hope that you might be saved and then you'd probably eventually die of dehydration or starvation. Yeah. Or Unless you were like really well experienced on like how to survive on, bear, a, on a desert island so if, bear grills yeah, yeah if, I was gonna say, if i was bear grills then i'd rather do desert island but as i'm not bear grills i'd rather die in a fire yeah goodbye just... farewell i bid you adieu however it goes <laughs> <laughs> however it goes at the end <laughs> thank you for listening to this week's episode um please head over to our instagram which is at gin and spooks for photos to do with everything we talked about on tonight's episode they will also be up on our blog which is gin and spooks.wordpress.com if you have any ghost stories or just creepy stories or drink suggestions then email them over to us at gin and spooks at gmail.com or send us a dm on instagram on oh. can you even can you even send a message on our blog no we can't can we I'm not sure. Um, we've got Twitter. other social media. Yeah. yeah. We've got Twitter. We've got other social media. We've got Facebook. Uh, we've got loads of things that we don't use anymore, but it's just there. <laughs> I've been tweeting a lot, you know, recent. Well, I say a lot a couple of times recently. But yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.